Hey everyone and welcome to episode 37 of the Convergence podcast. I'm your host Siddhartha Valluri and this week I got a chance to talk to NFN Kalyan who is one of the most prolific artists I've had the opportunity to talk with. We went really in depth into the various philosophies and mythologies that inspire his work and his take on the trends and perceptions of the fine art industry right now. We also spent some time talking about his experiences in the NFT space along with the various intricacies specific to that market. This conversation was one of the most engaging ones I've had with a creator in a very long time and I really encourage everyone to listen to the entire conversation because of the sheer variety of topics we eventually spoke about. So without further ado here is my conversation with Kalyan. Like I was telling you, I've been introduced to your work so recently that I haven't really had the time to understand it for myself because all the previous guests of the podcast, I've maybe been following them for a couple of years or I know them personally. So I understand at a deeper level what they are trying to represent through their work. So it's an interesting conversation for me to have with you right now. Yeah, I'm. Uh, it's interesting. I've done several Zoom calls, but usually it is. either with uh, some outlet which is the subject matter is pretty surface level mm-hmm. or with people who have been following me for a long time so this is more interesting yeah definitely yeah. and just to kind of bounce off that i i was going through the comment section of some of your paintings and there was a really interesting point where somebody comments on your painting why didn't you just digitally collage that together rather than actually painting it out there and mm-hmm. you ask them if it's the same thing whether you collage it digitally or you actually paint it out and the conversation essentially ends with you saying maybe i should have just written down the idea on paper and i thought yeah that was a pretty interesting thing like the act of thinking about doing something versus actually doing something i think it's been established in art that just the thought is the art mm-hmm. but at a certain point one has to take into account execution and i don't think there's anything wrong with just a digital collage but to me uh the act of painting makes a piece more interesting because especially because i view paint as a dead art form mm-hmm. not that it is not continuing but and not that there aren't more things that can be said in any form but um I, my comparison always is that you go to a movie i always talk, i always talk about inception so you okay. go to inception and then you see like the whole world turn sideways mm-hmm. and then you go to a museum and you're supposed to be equally impressed by a woman sitting with some flowers that was painted <laughs> in the 16th century but it doesn't it doesn't have the same effect on us right. it cannot so i like to play with painting from that standpoint for me painting is very entertaining because i view it as dead so i'm playing with the format as well and i think other painters have approached i don't think that's anything new the idea that painting is dead but that's a starting point for me with just the form yeah is that part of the reason why maybe a lot a large part of your artistic endeavor is to essentially tell many stories through one painting because you're drawing from so many different inspirations uh 
I, the, when I started, you see, I borrowed from all these different places. Um, I was only borrowing from paintings. Mm -hmm. For me, that was the entertainment of it. Now, of course, I brought in movies and all kinds of things. Uh, but I see it as when you reference something, you bring with it all the baggage that that thing has. Mm -hmm. And then one can interpret your painting based on all the different baggages that you've thrown into one mix. So uh, that that that's something I really enjoy. I, I, I've mentioned this before, but I started with um, with music and music sampling music is very commonplace. Mm -hmm. Whereas in fine art, it's uh, other than collage, it's much less um, utilized. You'll see uh, things like Andy Warhol putting Coca-Cola, these pop culture references, but less often do you see, or you see studies of classical works. Right. So uh, copies and reproductions and those types of things are used. But uh, for me, the idea of combining them has been much, uh, has been underutilized. So I kind of wanted to go there. I, I don't think I'll do this forever, but for now, and I keep on, the other thing I'll say about that is I keep on thinking I'll stop. Mm -hmm. So I don't have anything left to say with this. And then I'll have one more idea. Say, so, all right, I'll do that. <laughs> I keep going. <laughs> That's but I think a few more years, I can't imagine continuing. I'll have to, I'd started in sculpture. I'll move to something else. So. Maybe, I mean, this would be a good point to maybe track back and talk about how you actually got into art because you mentioned okay. on one of your Instagram stories that you started art at the age of 27, but then mm -hmm. it was already looking so good. So, I mean, what was all that? drastic change uh, at that well, point. well i had uh, my kid mm -hmm. yeah my son was born and that changed the whole thing for me uh i because before that i was working jobs that's what everybody does and there's nothing wrong with that mm -hmm. i uh at the time was a bit of a lost soul so i for me if i had lost everything my possessions consisted of a couch a bed a desk. I, I, I am, but then once you have a kid, you think, okay, I viewed, uh, and I've continued to revisit this idea throughout my career, but I viewed, um, this as an introduction to society. You have a kid, mm -hmm. then you have a choice, whether you want that kid to participate in all the things society has to offer or whether you want to, um, push those things away. But I thought you have to give the kid the choice. Uh, lots of people who come from uh, in society decide to move out of it. But uh, what I didn't want was to um, live off the grid in a cabin in the woods and subside on my own food and then have my kids say, this is awful. Why didn't you give me all the things that there are? So I said, okay. So then I thought, oh, I have to do something with my life. And instead of being practical, which I think most people would be, my first thought was, well, let's also provide the idea to my kid that uh, you have to pursue your dreams. Whether you fail or not is fine. Mm -hmm. You might fail. We have to pursue it so that that would be an example. I could say, well, I tried. So I decided to do art because that, since I was young, I knew that that was probably what I was best at. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. I mean... Right now, I'm 27 years old and you, at the same age in your life, made such a drastic change in the direction you were going. Did you have like creative urges or interests before you actually got into painting? Yeah, I, my whole life, uh, 
I, um, the first story my dad used to repeat to me was that when I was two, I had just turned two, I was trying to draw a circle. And he said that I spent something like three, four hours, which is unusual for a two-year-old, sitting there trying to draw a circle. And it began as a straight line because you can't curve and then slowly it would curve and mm -hmm. curve until I could draw a circle. So I've always had that um, tendency to be very focused on visual things. And I continued, I think by the time I was 13, I hit my technical, I didn't know where to go. I had, I could, I felt like I could technically achieve anything. Okay. Uh, because I practiced so much. But uh, so then I didn't know what to say though. And I guess it was when I was 27 that I twice, almost more than twice that age that I realized, okay, you say whatever you want. It, it doesn't matter. Whatever comes out of you, that's what you have to say. And then I followed that muse since then. Wow, that's interesting. Coming to the actual sources of inspiration that you're drawing these ideas from, were these always a part of your childhood growing up where you were like influenced by these ideas and different stories? Yeah, I, uh, the Mahabharata has always been central to my life. And uh, growing up, I had all the wall hangings with all the stories being told on them. And, and of course the figures, you know, mm -hmm. Ganesh and whatever. I have one on my desk here and uh, still. And, um, uh, for me, I think I was always taught in, a, in the way that I view it should be viewed as not a religion, but a, a way of existence, like a way of viewing things. And then uh, also um, Christianity, I was homeschooled. Christianity was taught to me in a fundamental sense that I was reading the Bible and everything. Uh, and that was also taught to me as somewhat of an academic experience. It wasn't taught to me as a religious thing. So, uh, and then also <clears throat> you see all the pop culture references. I've always been obsessed with knowing everything about anything. I want, oh, I see something about earthquakes and I read every earthquake that's happened, but whatever. So all the pop culture stuff comes from that as well. I'm interested in music, comic books, movies, anything. I, I'm interested in knowing about it. So that uh, is there. I mean, there are quite a few people like, like yourself where they're constantly reading about a whole variety of things but how do you actually maybe assemble those informations and ideas in your mind because reading about it is one thing but actually translating it into a tangible form of art is completely different i think it can't be done uh or it can be but i think you'll fail to say what you wish to say or fail to achieve a higher level of artistic expression rather if you're trying to do everything logically with the mind mm -hmm. if you're thinking inspiration may come to your mind and connections may come to your mind but it has to be an entirely intuitive process so we absorb everything that happens to us any artist or human being and then what comes out it all is almost the same way that you live life there's consideration of what action needs to be taken uh, at every point but at a certain juncture you're just living and there you then the question becomes one of connection between your uh, mind and your spirit and your emotions and everything. It's an internal, who am I question. All those types of things come into it. But in the end, things come in. And if you think too hard about what is coming out, what, what the meaning of what, what is coming out is, you will fail in getting across a higher meaning. 
I always think about poetry. Mm-hmm. When poets write something, there there's more than is in those words. We know from experience and being a human being, we read it and we experience something. But if the person just wrote out what that feeling was, they wrote a whole poem about a tree, but it's about love. If they just say love is important, <laughs> it doesn't have it doesn't mean anything. So right. the artwork must always have that thing that you you just it just comes out. You know it's there. But you, if you comes from the mind too much, there's a failure. Mm-hmm. There is some aspect of subjectivity to this as well, right? Because especially yeah. because you're drawing from so many different sources. Whenever somebody else looks at it, they have their own sensibilities towards what that mythology or that story means to them. So how do you deal yes. with that? I think that's a natural part of any human expression. Uh, I, I, you know you could go to a literature class and people will argue forever about what Tolstoy was doing or whoever, what Moby Dick is about, all these different books. And I think the same is true for art. Uh, Sometimes I think in art, there's a big mistake. Uh, When you go to a museum, sometimes you'll see these definitive artist statements written by a third party on the wall. This is what whoever, Jackson Pollock did. But I think if you see the artist speak, Sometimes it's very coherent, but sometimes they're just saying things like, well, I like to move my, and you say, what the, f- what is this about? What is this guy talking But they're talking on that level that they're, these things came into them and this is what's coming out. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's a mistake in art to, when you see these definitive things, this is what it's about. Uh, that's very hard. And, but Uh, As far as other people's interpretations and their effect on me, the first one I saw like that was I did a picture of Gandhi and I thought how that cannot be controversial at all. Well, uh, because of his opinions on African, native Africans, when he lived in South Africa, this was controversial because he made some comments which are fairly racist, Mm -hmm. overtly. Uh, I think as his life progressed, he changed his opinion on that. Uh, I think he's been pretty, was pretty clear that he had changed his opinion on the nature of different races. However, he did say those things. So everybody, so some people, I had a large South African following on Instagram, I do, they got very upset about that. So I said, oh, uh, they can overlook uh, that this is not really what he was about because of this thing. And then since then, I'm sure you've seen people get upset at a lot of yeah. my art. And that again is not intentional. There's never any mean to insult but it's interesting to see. Uh, I, the first time I saw that people were insulted, I was shocked. Um, Does that bother you? Not, uh, it doesn't bother me on an artistic or a personal level. It bothers me on a level of, um, I think that, well, the, the part that bothers me is, uh, I think that the, I grew up with a certain view of what it was to be Hindu. And it was, it's an undogmatic existence. Uh, and that these people had taken such a dogmatic view on it. No, no, this is how you depict Krishna. Mm-hmm. What the, that, what does that mean? Uh, these things have no meaning. Uh, or, or this is not the story. Well, I know it's not the story. This is just a painting, you know. But that it has to be a certain way. Uh, I, it made me a little bit sad to find out as... Uh, somebody living abroad for most of my life. I've not been back to India since I was 13 or 14 years old. Um, that, And I'm sure that this, this trend has always existed, but I think it's become amplified 
maybe in the last 30 years, that there's this dogmatism. And I think it's for political end, yeah. actually. Uh, that that makes me a little sad, but not on a personal or artistic level. Okay. Yeah, because you always see a lot of these parallel conversations happening between two, three different people just talking about the art and somebody's trying to rationalize the artistic side of it. Somebody is questioning the dogma or the religion behind the artwork itself. And yeah. As humans, we obviously tend to focus on one or two negative things that might happen, you know, some of positive things. So I'm always curious how artists deal with that. I think uh, some artists are very affected by it, um, but I think that's just the nature of existing today because you see on social media has such an incredible impact on people, but I try to have my life centered in um, my life rather than in these other things. I mean, it doesn't affect my continued creation. I don't think at all about those things when I'm making art either. Okay. It makes no difference. So a lot of these stories that you're drawing from, some of them may have conflicting ideas within those stories itself, right? Mm. So how yeah. do you deal with that when you're putting these together? To me, that's the whole beauty of it. Mm. To me, that's the whole point of my work. That's, I view myself as a traditional Hindu. Uh, although I would, if somebody asked me, do you have a religion? I would say no. But I think that that is a traditional Hindu to, to just see the world. It's a world perspective rather than anything else. So like when I think about um, a, a topic which I've been dealing with this year quite a bit is trying to reinterpret the universal form of Krishna in different ways. Mm -hmm. So I have one where there's all children's book characters looking at one pouring milk out of a jug and you think, well, what does that mean? But I always see the universal form depicted as a thing with many arms. And if you read it, yes, it says many arms and many faces, but it also says many other things. It's a completely undefinable thing, which means something different to everyone. It says it in the text itself. So why not show it as all encompassing in any different way you can? Mm -hmm. And the, and also, I also think about in the Bhagavad Gita, it's always people always harken back to that. This is the, the central uh, way of viewing everything and look how beautiful it is. Well, at its heart, if we just look at it as a story, Krishna is telling Arjun, go kill your cousins. It's not some beautiful, we're all going to live in the woods and hold hands and kiss each other. That, that has nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's this tendency to think, yeah, we talk about Pete. It is not. It is about going and committing murder of many people and possibly dying yourself because that is your path in life and your path in life cannot be ignored. Um, of course, it's more complex than that, but there's in just a story level that that's what he's saying. Uh, so all those different levels, because there is the beauty and all these other ideas on top of that. I'm trying to not just reinterpret those stories, but even in things which have nothing directly to do with Hinduism. There's no gods, no nothing. Mm -hmm. This is, I'm trying to show that nuance that it is very complex. There's beauty there. There's, it's everything. So uh, I think that it goes right in line with my work. Yeah it, yeah. it kind of represents in your work because it is fairly complex visually. It's not a simple, yeah. simple, let's say reduction of what the story is, but rather overwhelming the viewer with a lot of sensory detail, essentially. Yeah, uh, that I, I've been thinking about this a lot, and this is kind of a bit of a tangent, but I grew up reading a comic book called Cerebus. Mm -hmm. 
and it was started in the 1970s. And this guy, he would put out an issue every month and he self-published it and drew everything, wrote everything, just one guy. And then after a couple issues, he said, I'm going to do 300 issues of this by myself, publish it, write it, which people thought he was crazy. There's no way. Well, and it began, he wasn't a very good cartoonist. His stories were silly. It was a Conan the Barbarian parody, basically. I mean, it evolved into one of the most complex commentaries on religion, politics, the nature of existence, the nature of religion, the nature of everything, these huge, massive subjects. Um, and eventually the guy even maybe lost his mind, I think maybe from just doing this every day wow. for years. And it became, it still was brilliantly handled material, but the story, the characters would just change their personality to be a whole different person. The story would stop making any kind of sense. It just became this monstrosity. And I was thinking earlier how that, I started reading that when I was maybe 10, how reading something so wild at such a young age and then following it, now I'm 39, I still pick it up and read things just to see it, that maybe this complexity, this insanity of just one person making this monster has stuck with me, that I still try to be the one person making these, these monsters, mm -hmm. this, this work that nobody else has the patience or desire to make. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point because in the current age that we're living in, everything is tailored towards instant gratification. So very few people actually take the time to spend longer and longer on a single piece of work whether it's painting or movies or anything it, that might be. Yeah. And I guess you as a person change over the course of making that itself, right? Yes. It surprises me. Getting older surprises me. Mm -hmm. Because uh, in my heart, I'm the same person I always was, right? But then I look at what people must see on the surface. So I feel the same, but I look at what pe people must see on the surface and I say, oh, I'm a much more, I guess the word, there is a word for it, but it seems like a, a cliche. I'm a much more mature thing. I'm a thing that exists much more inside myself. I'm, I'm centered. Whereas before, when you're young, you're uncertain. So you're you, but there's uncertainty. And that can lead to all kinds of, you know, things happening in your life. Uh, you get married to the wrong person. You do this, you do all kinds of whatever happens. And then as you get older, you know what you are. And the same thing happens in art. Uh, and, but I try not to, so, but that can become a, uh, a problem for artists. Um, where in life, it can become a problem also where you see people and they, you see them old and they say things like, I am who I am. I don't care what anybody else thinks. And this is what I am. And so then they've decided that there'll be no more growth there, that right. this is it. And you see the same thing in art. Uh, when you think about say the Rolling Stones, not to say that their music hasn't changed, but uh, their music was pretty insignificant after 1975, but they continue to play today, the same song, Satisfaction. Uh, whereas if you look at other artists, you say, uh, or other musicians, you say, oh, wow, they, they kept moving. And a large part of that, which I try to think of in myself, which is why I think maybe eventually I have to stop painting, is uh, that can be done by presenting yourself with 
options that you've never seen before. As, as when you go into the recording studio and you say, okay, how do we do it last time? Oh, I, this is how I like the microphone. And these are the chords that worked. And remember, this is the key. When you first started, you knew none of that stuff. Right. So there were all these mistakes and there's something raw in the product that comes out of that. Wow, that was so great. You feel it. Whereas later on, it feels much more, eh, well, yeah, it's a good song. It's fine. But all the mistakes and all the things you didn't know led to these other amazing things. And you refined that. So I tried to continue to present myself with situations which are not easy. Mm. And I hope that quitting painting will be one of those things. I'll quit and then say, oh my God, what do I do? This vacuum has to be filled Whoa. and I will know. I want to come back to this idea of quitting painting after this one question, because when an artist has been working for like decades on end and they choose to consciously change the kind of work they do, people who have been following them for a certain style of work tend to revolt against that. They, they don't mm -hmm. want their favorite artists to change the kind of music or change the kind of painting that they're doing. I, I, um, I understand that fully. I think that the only way to overcome that is to make something equally great. Mm -hmm. I, my heroes are always uh, from cinema okay. for some reason, uh, rather than the fine art world. But I always think about Kubrick so to make 2001 A Space Odyssey, Clockwork Orange, uh, Full Metal Jacket, the sh whatever, all, Barry Lyndon, all these movies, they, they seemingly on the surface have nothing to do with one another. It wasn't, uh, like even a great director like Christopher Nolan, if I watch Tenet, Tenet and I watch uh, um, Inception and I watch, there's this playing with time, mm -hmm. there's these things folding back on themselves, there's these echoes, there's, the concepts are still there. You can go to it and it's an expansion on his ideas uh even a movie like prestige the prestige he's which is about magic he's yeah. playing with time uh whereas with uh if you watch barry linden that movie is the slowest imaginable movie nothing happens for sometimes and a lot of it was by necessity they filmed using a camera which used natural light but if you did that everybody on the set had to move like this <laughs> otherwise they wouldn't catch the movement and then he'd make another movie, which is completely wild and crazy, just all these different genres. But each time he did it, uh, he was fantastic. So you could hate one of his movies, but there's no denying that it was very good. So if I moved tomorrow into abstract expressionism as a painter, let's say, I would hope that somebody would say, I see that this is great, but I don't love it maybe as much as that, but this is great. I guess the only way of combating it, I think. I guess that's where the two different tangential points of whether you like the idea of the artist or the execution of the artist comes into play. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is eventually I'll be dead and then people can look back because mm -hmm. probably even now I'm looking back, it was 1960, 1970 when Kubrick was doing these things, 1980. Um, maybe at the time people said, I don't, I hate this. Why doesn't he make another 2001 A Space Odyssey? I don't know what the reactions at the time were. We have the benefit of hindsight. Right. So maybe that's what it'll take to appreciate it. I don't know. So, so with that in mind, why do you want to eventually quit painting? To, pres to present, well, I began in sculpture. When I first started as an artist, I began in sculpture. And looking back, I think I was a young artist and my work wasn't as good, mm -hmm. but technically, and in terms of the interest in the sculpture, it was as good. The concept was actually decent, but I didn't know how to say it. Mm -hmm. But uh, when 
you look at uh, the sculptures, they're fantastic. I used to shut down any art fair I was in, you'd put that sculpture in it, that would be the highlight of the thing because there were these glass things, they were, they were really cool. Uh, and then I said, I don't wanna be remembered as the guy who makes these glass sculptures. Uh, oh, the guy who does the glass? Yeah, I've seen him. <laughs> I, I wanna, be, even if I'm just, because if somebody's ever going to describe me now as, oh, the guy who paints. Mm -hmm. No, there's, there's going to be more to it. There's going to be more concept to the way they describe it. So I'm hoping that I can make another shift. And I already moved into NFT a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I'll be doing some more later this year. Uh, I don't love NFT. Uh, and when I began, I loved it. When I began about a year and a half ago, I loved the idea of it. And now... I don't love it anymore, but um, I think it's still a medium that can be played with, but I think it needs to, the, the marketplaces need to evolve a little bit more before I feel comfortable, fully comfortable in them. But uh, so that may be the direction I move, or I would like to deal with installation art or, you know, there's so many different things that an artist can deal with. And I would hope that let's say I did an installation in a building. I would hope that anybody who enjoyed my paintings would go and say, oh my God, this is, amazing i wish you would paint but this is incredible or whatever their thought is i hope to continue the idea that it's good good stuff and that's the part about nfts which i don't like is i think it's very difficult to achieve uh the marketplace isn't there for people to do good fine art yet uh, not that there aren't good artists in the space a good artist can exist anywhere but the marketplace has to support that and uh that has a lot to do with what um, what platforms are are pushing and what buyers are seeing as valuable. Right now, for example, all these monkey heads, I forget what they're called, board apes, board apes or whatever. Yeah. yeah, I mean, those are the hot items. This is nothing. I mean, it's fine. I don't have anything against it, uh, but it's not anything with any weight. Uh, so to deal with a weighty subject, the I, I, this is why I moved away from it. I did an NFT thing in February and it was very monetarily successful, but I felt as though, and I was correct in feeling that the uh, nobody knew what I was doing. Mm -hmm. They just said, "Oh, there's a thing. We're getting it." Right. And so that I, I, there needs to be, and there will be, uh, spaces like the way there's Nifty Gateway and Maker's Place and all these, and there needs to be a space which is able to show artists for what they are thinking more than just, uh, "Oh, here's a, here's a." a crypto product and it might increase in value, which art is that, but it must also be something more. Yeah. The NFT space is an interesting thing because the moment so much money is attached to a particular entity, everyone assumes it is good because others are saying so. And it almost becomes a dogma in itself where if you say, you know what, it's actually not that good, or I think it's not that good. Then you almost get like droves of people saying like, you don't know anything about the crypto space. You know, it's, it, it exists in the art space, too. Mm -hmm. um, although in the art space, it's very popular for unsuccessful artists <laughs> to look at a guy like Damien Hirst and say, oh, he sucks. But the reality is, if today I had to see he did that. Right. That's what I always point out to people. You know how hard it is to do anything in the world? It's very difficult. Mm -hmm. And doing things first and everything sometimes doesn't hold any weight. But he had a lot he put out a lot of ideas 
And they were all centered around how to become successful and make money making art. And I'm not sure if tomorrow, everybody gets mad at him, but I'm not sure if tomorrow somebody said, okay, you, me, you do that. I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could do what he did. I'm not capable of having these types of ideas. In the NFT space, it exists differently because it felt for one moment, and I think people are realizing that it's not, that it was uh, very, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but very democratic, that anybody could get elected to be the next crypto millionaire <laughs> NFT artist. Right. But the reality was never that either. It never was going to be the case. Yeah. Um, we saw, we were seeing some people breaking out, but once they broke out, that's the hierarchy now. They're the king. Yeah. No, that's, that's a great observation. I think I would say there are two types of crypto art millionaires. People who already had a very significant body of work for the last 15, 20 years or 10 years yeah. who could use the weight of that to push through or else people who hit a particular trend at the right moment and they were just yeah. there at that time. There, There's a guy um, and there, there's also clever, the trend can also be sometimes not even artistic, but clever marketing. Mm -hmm. One way that uh, you'll see, um, uh, I've got a, my brother-in-law's dog uh -huh, here. Um, okay. One, <laughs> One way that um, this uh, the marketing thing works and people become millionaires off of it is, for example, if you buy my old NFTs and then burn them, you get this exclusive NFT. So then they're making money off the secondary sales of their old work mm -hmm. and everybody's trying to buy for this new work and you can make a ton of money. So it's not even just the work, uh, which is fine. But um I think eventually there will arise as more fine artists move into the space with serious conceptual work. The idea that a, maybe we shouldn't just go for the money because that's the goal right now. Just go for the money. Can we sell 700 of these for a thousand dollars a piece? Let's just do it. <laughs> Who cares what it is? <laughs> and then um, the other side of it is um, uh, that uh, the, the, like I said, the platforms will support concepts. Mm -hmm. So we'll see Gagosian Gallery or whoever move into this. And then that'll be another, they call them gatekeepers. That's the, the, the great word everybody is. That'll be another gatekeeper. But it'll be a gatekeeper that I could at least live with. I say, okay, they're trying to show something which, yes, they want to make money. But they're, they're, there's, a, another, there's another motive behind it as well. There was a really interesting post that Slime Sunday, the artist, put up today or yesterday mm -hmm. i think where he has launched or minted this nft which reveals itself each time a post of his own gets censored on social media that i thought was mm. a pretty unique idea and a pretty interesting way to present his work i like that uh i think um i think it's going to be difficult to know right now everybody's playing with the technique when this first broke, you can look on my Instagram. I have a video from maybe June of 2020 mm -hmm. uh, where I talk about NFT. I just found out about it maybe a month before, and I was going to have my first drop on Nifty Gateway the next day. And I was saying the, the, the thing, and I still believe this, but I think it won't be as significant as I was hoping it would be. I was hoping um, we'd be able to push I always think about uh, Steve Jobs says that probably you can only change the world one degree, but over time, that one degree Brown becomes was, a huge yeah. gap. Yeah. 
I was hoping that we'd be able to change it. And it goes with this idea of Slime Sunday. I was saying, I hope that people will look at this as a format of art and not just a format of sales. And, uh, and so far that hasn't been played with too much. There's a platform called Async Art, which mm -hmm. is working with that. And then you'll also see, um, I forget the guy's name, Daniel Astrom or whatever his name is. He's from here in Miami. Uh, his Nifty Gateway drops, they change over time. Okay. And like the Slime Sunday, it reacts to things. When you put things on the blockchain, there's so many options for how to have it move. It doesn't have to be a static thing. And uh, my the one I had in February, that was part of my uh, feeling that it was a failure is Nifty Gateway would not let me upload my own token. So I couldn't go to my own developer and get it done and then give it to them. Okay. And then they wouldn't develop the token for me, which is I wanted it to change every time it was sold. Ah, uh, I see. And so if somebody never, so what this would do is uh, what people were doing at the time and what artists often want is for their work to flip for a higher price. Mm -hmm. Because when it flips, uh, you get the 10% and then it, your next drop becomes worth more. Oh, this last drop, I had a piece sell for 20,000. So we can price this one at this. But in reality, you as an artist, you don't want your work to resell. So this was my kind of hedging against that. If when it sells, it becomes a different thing, the people who hold on to the original then have something that's worth more. And if you sell it, yes, it could still be worth something. I don't know, the market will dictate that. But the people who hold it will in the end uh, be winners. You want as an artist, people to buy your work because they love it. Mm. Not because they can sell it for something higher. Not because they can sell it for something higher. And this, and there is in the art world that exists, but even so the people who buy Picassos and sell them for a hundred million dollars, 20 years later, they like that painting. And I'm not sure how much that exists in the crypto space. If people are reselling it within a month. Oh, I love that piece that I just sold. You know, there's not that same feeling. Yeah, that's a, that's a great observation. I think like you were kind of talking about your inspiration from movies and in movies you've seen it's a mature market now because it's like a hundred years old or if not more where yeah. there are these blockbuster movies which make billions of dollars but then there's like good movies or great cinema for the story or for the art and craft of it. So I guess mm -hmm. you might see this evolve that way eventually. It, it's interesting to think about because... Um, NFT, there's the collectible concept of it. So there'll be people putting NFT clothing or whatever. All, there's all different ways this can be handled. A, new, a gun that you can buy for a game and only if there's a hundred of them, you buy them as NFT, whatever. There's a million things. But I think if you look at the fine art market, it's actually the opposite of, the, of cinema because the most difficult to decipher pieces are the ones that sell for so much money. I don't know what is going on with some pieces. You look at it, you say, I don't know what it is. It doesn't mean it's not great, but a lot of these, uh, Rothko and everything, you look at it and you say, okay, it's a color field. I have feeling from it. I don't know what it is. I have no idea, uh, but it's selling for so much. Whereas the blockbusters in cinema are ones that everybody can have. And I'm not sure as that's the thing about the NFT spaces, I think it'll start to branch off where fine art will go its own way. And that's one I think it'll become interesting because I'm a fine artist, but I'm dropping next to people who are making digital shoes, right. which is fine. I, I think that's great, but it's not, we're not the same people. Another thing, I mean, since we're on the NFT subject, there are so many celebrities who are getting onto the NFT space where they basically bring on an artist, but launch it under their brand name. How do you feel mm. about that as somebody who's actually in the art of creating something? 
I think it's okay. I think that's always existed. If that artist wants to do that, fine. You know, um, I think uh, there's so many different elements. Like even if, even Jeff Koons, he doesn't paint his own paintings. Uh, Kahinde Wiley doesn't paint his own paintings. I mean, he can paint, but he doesn't do it. Uh, I think, okay, whatever. It's, it is what it is. It doesn't matter to me at all. Uh, the celebrity jumping into the NFT space, the one thing which I roll my eyes at is I think the NFT space should be more careful with that because I think they're just using it to promote themselves. Oh, the weekend has a drop or whatever, and it just types up the whole thing. Yeah. And maybe that's the phase it needs to go through to build this ecosystem. But I think who cares? That guy, you know what? He's making his music. Like why even bring him in? Like, cause I don't even know if sometimes I know that maybe the lady who dates um, Elon Musk Grimes or whatever, yeah. probably she wanted to make NFTs. But some of these people, I think that they were actually reached out to like, hey, you want to make an NFT? And they're like, sure, we'll make a million dollars. They didn't even know it was happening kind of thing. Hmm. I think, why do that? But whatever, even that, fine. I think what I'm actually expecting or hoping for in the NFT space is the idea of like nonlinear storytelling where different mm. people can own different parts of a story and maybe each person has a different ending to a particular story and then i think it will be pretty interesting i think that you're onto something real I, I don't think about those things very much but i do think about the idea that gaming at some point may overtake cinema mm-hmm. um, the argument could be made it already has i'm not sure about i don't think that's i would true. say monetarily it has definitely yeah, but in terms of um, mass, uh, and it, it hasn't reached, for example, my generation to the same degree. I'm thinking as this younger generation comes up, then I will be phased out, you know? <laughs> right. But uh, I think NFT is going to be a major part of that in the exact way that you're saying, because the games have become about storytelling and so on. Sometimes I read some, I'll be reading something, and they'll say, oh, the story in this game was better than the movie. I think, what does that even mean? I don't play games. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. But then my wife, who plays games, she said, oh, yeah, like, I know. The stories in games can be great. And I think what you're saying about NFT fits exactly into that. And I think you're 100% correct. Yeah. These are interesting things. I mean, that's the exciting part of the NFT space, I guess. Like, we are in a time where multiple actual changes are happening in the art field that you can see. Yeah. Yes. I wonder sometimes how much longer the world, the natural ecosystem can sustain, uh, sustain itself while we continue to build out these things. Sometimes I'm thinking I'm, I have some Bitcoin and then I'll read, oh, you know, in 2030, Bitcoin could be worth a million. I think, oh, that's cool. Great. And then I think, but will all these servers and everything still be able to run in 2030? <laughs> I don't know. Like how long can we continue this? I'm not right. sure. Yeah, I guess I think I think the answer to 2030 is yes, but 2060, I'm not sure. Mm. You know, there is an aspect of like just of a game theory kind of a thing where it's just almost like leveling up each year. Hey, it's like 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, it just keeps going. Yeah, you mean Bitcoin? Yeah, Bitcoin and just cryptos in general, I guess. Um, Just kind of bringing back to your art expression and the artwork that you're doing, you generally do it in terms of series of artworks do you have these ideas already planned out like hey these nine paintings are going to look like this i i am very 
bad at planning. I, I like, for example, I just did a series called the Tank Man series where you see black and white and then mm -hmm. there's a gold frame. I thought in my head, I hope I can get to 10. And I did it. I wasn't sure when I started if I could, but each painting had to stand for on its own legs. And I can't imagine what the painting's gonna be before I start trying to figure it out. So I managed to get out 10. I think I could probably do more, but I'm not going to. I've already found a different direction to take that. Okay. Uh, but um, no, I don't have anything planned. Even the I did a Kalki series, which had 10. And even that, as I was making it, I wasn't, I did not know the story as I was doing it. Mm -hmm. I, I did, I think the ninth painting, then the second painting, then the fourth painting, okay. and then it came together. Yeah. That's interesting. So does that mean that when somebody views the entire collection in its entirety, are they going to get an additional message through those collective paintings or do each of them stand for itself? I think I tried to make my paintings connect. Mm -hmm. Sometimes even visually, you'll see repeated visuals. Uh, and I do that so that the, somebody who's aware of my work can think, oh, maybe there's a connect when they can consider that. But uh, I think one can, uh, for example, for sure in the Kalki series, you can get something out of viewing the whole thing. It all makes sense. I don't know how it happened because I wasn't, but it all can make complete sense. Right. But uh, this, um, I think all of my work centers around the same ideas. So in that way, for example, the Tank Man series, I think when you see it, you can say, yes, um, he's approaching the subject in, in all these different manners. Some of them are small, very personal mm -hmm. ways. And some of them are these kind of epic ways, but it's the same concept. The interior happens everywhere type thing that you can see in different ways. So what is the actual economics of your like art career? Do each of them get sold to a different collector or does one person buy the entire thing? I mean, how does that happen? Uh, I, I make paintings with no idea about selling them mm -hmm. because when I started, I had no way of doing anything. And that's basically uh, until artists reach a certain level, which I have had offers like to, now at this point, I've had offers that work like this. Uh, a gallery tells me we'll pay you X amount of money. And then uh, you just give us all your paintings for that year. Okay. And uh, I've never done one of those. What happens is I have a gallery in Los Angeles. I've known him for 10 years maybe longer. And we have a very good handshake relationship. There's no contracts, no nothing, but he has reputation as sterling and his treatment of me has been wonderful. So I give him my paintings when they're done. He decides what to take to a show. All right, we'll take this, this. He comes here, picks them out. We ship them out there. I show up for the opening and then we sell them. The pandemic really hurt yeah. sales of paintings because people, nobody can see them right but uh we're still doing we do we sold paintings last year all the same yeah oh that's interesting i guess the good thing it, go ahead sorry go and ahead. galleries just so you know to to fill out the economics just so you know how galleries work almost every gallery which is worth anything will uh take 50 percent. i oh. get 50 they get 50 yeah some galleries don't deserve the 50 but a good gallery they earn that 50. all i'm doing is painting I don't think anymore. They have to handle a million things. They're shipping them. They're displaying them. They're framing them. They're calling people. They're getting people to come in. They're networking. They earn the money. Uh, so yeah, that's how it works. 
through this like network of galleries and other artists that you'll obviously meet over the course of the years have you wanted to collaborate with more people and see how the dynamic of two three people working together works i'll i'll say two things about this i you know jerry salts no i'm not aware he's the he's an art critic i think for the new york times he won a pulitzer for criticism so he's the top of the food chain right now. There's differing opinions on the quality of his criticism, but he wrote a book. He's a failed artist. I'm sorry to call him that, but he is. Uh, um, he wrote a book, How to Be an Artist. And one of the first rules in that was spend as much time with other artists as you can. Be Absorb the creativity of other artists. Work next to other artists. And I think that there's a great history of that being successful, both for artists and writers. When you think of... Um, Paris in the 30s and all these different time periods. I never have done any of that. Mm -hmm. There's a large artist collective here in Miami of very first rate artists with huge worldwide followings. I tried to become involved in that and I could not do it. I have to work solitary. So that's the first thing I'll say about collaboration. And two, I have had situations. Uh, there's a artist named uh, Jonathan Antonio, for example, he goes by Slade Wilson on Instagram. Uh, he's here in Miami and he, did, he does digital work. And at one point I said, I want to paint something. I want you to do me a digital work. I'll pay you for it. And then I want to change it and put it in my painting the way I want it. So can you make this? But I paid him. Okay. And then I put it in my painting. There was no, and he could do whatever he wanted within the parameters. It wasn't like I say, no, I was, I, it's his process. Right. But I didn't want to collaborate. I didn't want to say, okay, listen, this is the piece I'm working on. How should we do it? I just said, this is what I want. I want to put it in there. So I'm very non-collaborative, I think. Yeah. That's interesting. So I guess in that process, it's more like an evolution rather than a collaboration where you take something that he has made and then you add your yeah. own thing to that. I added my own thing to it, yeah. Another thing I noticed about your work is that you have these really large-scale paintings which you split into multiple canvases. What's the What's the reason behind that? Because I can't find a wall big enough. I don't have a wall big enough to paint the whole oh, thing. Okay. So one of them, for example, is 36 feet wide. I said, okay, there's no way. So I painted, they're all four feet wide okay. and there's no, yeah. So is your studio the same place where you live or? Uh, yes, currently. Okay. Yeah, I bought a house in December. Yeah. Okay, okay. So it didn't used to be, but it is now. So eventually do you, I mean, would you like to have a space where that 30 feet painting can be oh yeah thing. okay yeah what and right now i'm happy doing work like this i like the panels and i think i've used them to my advantage because i grew up reading comic books mm -hmm. and to me this separation creates something in the viewer's mind where they see things sequentially and they see each panel as an individual piece right that's another thing i focus on is having each panel if you look at it you see that maybe there should be more but it can stand alone as a piece and then you see it as a greater part. So that also appeals to me that somebody can look at it sequentially and in their mind, unconsciously, they might see it as more sequential than even if it was a single thing. Mm, because then they imagine what the remaining part could be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In a situation like that, do you present it as a single piece of art or is it like three pieces which individual collectors could own at some point potentially. No, it has to be an individual piece. Yeah. Okay. You have to buy the whole, everything. I th nice. One interesting thing is um, we played the opposite game with 
uh, NFT because we scanned some of my paintings and put them in NFT. Now, in the art world, historically, um, there have been people who have made these paintings and then the paintings have split up over time. So one person will have one part of it. That exists, mm -hmm. um, that different parts of a painting will be in different parts of the world. In the NFT space, we saw an opportunity to take my paintings, scan them, put them on Nifty Gateway, and then sell them as splits immediately. And then they had to be reassembled. Oh. So we, kind of, we viewed that as kind of a, a deconstruction of the way things happen in, in phys the physical world. I don't think people, like I said, nobody in the NFT space saw that, but that's what it was. It was a deconstruction of the, it was the opposite of what happens in, in the real world historically. So, yeah, that's the thing about the, especially the kind of work that you're doing because to really appreciate it, you need to stand in front of it because it's so huge. Yes. But then NFTs yes. are on the screen. And unless you have a yeah. screen that big, you really won't appreciate it. I think the more I think about um, the direction the world is going, I think it's always been this way a bit. But I think I try to make work that people will appreciate looking at. I think it's very difficult to appreciate looking at a lot of art. Mm -hmm because of what I was saying about the world changing so that our minds have these visual uh, explosions from other places. And also because um, art became so conceptual that even work made 30, 40 years ago, at the time, maybe at that moment in time, somebody could walk in off the street and say, oh, I get that. But now we look at it and say, it's a remnant. We have no idea what it's about. When even Picasso, when you look at a Picasso, I like Picasso. Does it look revolutionary to me? Or no, somebody has to explain that. To me. Oh, people, he did this. And that's why people cared at the time. Oh, okay, cool, cool. That's why you have to take these art history classes. Whereas if you walk in, you see the Sistine Chapel, nobody has to explain to you. Oh, like it took a long time to paint that. You know, it took a long time to paint that, mm -hmm. you know. Whether or not you think it's any good or you have a feeling about it is always up to you, but you know what it is. And um, I think as NFT progresses, it's going to become increasingly about just having it. Nobody's going to care what it is. Like the banana. Yeah. Remember the guy hung up? The people didn't buy a banana. They bought a certificate which said they had a banana. So the, and maybe they gave them a banana, which was gone after a week. <laughs> and then uh, you can sit down with your friends and you can say, oh, we, we, we bought the banana. banana. Yeah. yeah. And that's what NFT will be. Oh, I have the thing. And you can just show it on your phone and nobody really cares to see the beauty of it. Mm. As creators, that's kind of sad in a way where what thoughts that actually go into creating something may not be appreciated at the end of the day. That's interesting. I think, I think, that's why people, and I try to do this a bit. Uh, my work I know is a bit um, more difficult to grasp than somebody's drawing a picture of Paris Hilton or whatever that's getting 10,000 likes on Instagram. But um, I think that's why you have to take somewhat of a populist mentality in the Instagram social media age. I'm dealing with what I view as interesting subject matter, but I'm presenting it in a way that if somebody chooses to, anybody could digest. There's SpongeBob, I know what that is, or whatever it is. It can, there's an access point to move into it. And I think that 
I would recommend not that they have to put SpongeBob or the way I do it, but I would recommend like a good, good example of it is Miles Johnson. You know, Miles Johnson, the artist. No. Um, he has about a million or something Instagram followers. I thought he's just huge, but all his painting, all his drawings, rather, he does paint also, but his drawings uh, are very, they're not pop culture references or anything, but they're very easy to move into. Okay. You see clever handling of human emotion and anybody can relate to that. You know it as soon as you see it. And I, so I recommend to any artist starting today, try to do something, unless you don't care at all, that people can move into if you want that type of immediate recognition. That may not necessarily be everybody's voice. The first level of advice I would always give to an artist is you had to say something true that's about yourself and is honest. And what they might do is something that nobody can relate to in the world, and that's what they must do. But beyond that, if they decide, oh, I want to be more, I want to sell immediately and do all these types of things, rather than marketing yourself and all that kind of stuff, which is a tactic that people really take, I'm going to become, I'm as much a businessman as I'm an artist. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. Take a tack where, make a piece that people can relate to and start there. Don't worry about the rest of it. If you want to take a route of immediate uh, recognition. Yeah, I I would say I have slightly mixed feelings about that because you as an artist happen to be in that perfect time frame where as social media was evolving, your own aesthetics and taste and skills were evolving. So now it almost feels natural that there are some pop culture elements or SpongeBob or Mario, whatever it may be, in your work. Yeah, and it, I think it just works well with what you're what you were doing anyways because you are taking stories and different ideas and mythologies together. But yeah, do you think if somebody di directly tries to chase that acceptance of their work rather than what they are trying to tell, how do you think? No, you, have, you can't, you can never chase. Mm -hmm. You can never chase because it's dishonest and people recognize that immediately. There's a reaction, there's a recoiling from that. Um, and Yes, I do think that people have succeeded in chasing it. I don't mean that you can't succeed. I mean, that soul of your work will never be there. This guy, Alec Monopoly, who I think is a fine person. I, I don't know much. I never met him, but I know people that know him. I think he's, he's okay. I feel great. But um, he chased that and succeeded. I'm sure he has millions of dollars. But... Uh, I don't think anybody can look at his work and truly feel uh, he's expressed something important. Uh, you know, even if that important thing is just a moment in time that we, that we recognize, it doesn't have to be some massive comment on the, the universe, mm -hmm. but just something of, 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 soul, of something which has soul. I don't think anybody can do that. Or even a Jeff Koons. I'm not sure if we can do that with his work. But he started from Wall Street and he had almost a built-in clientele. And I don't think anybody would ever accuse him of making work which had a soul. Um, so uh, you can't achieve success, but that thing that's missing, that's eternal. We know it when we see it. We know people that have it. Even if the work is bad, we know it's there. It's bad. Oh, God, they're awful artists, but there's something there. We know it. So you have to start with that. Hmm. That's a good point. I think that's the reason why some pieces of art get remembered through the ages. Because, I mean, there were like a thousand Renaissance painters, but only a handful 
actually get remembered at the end of the day. Yeah. And it's funny, sometimes you'll see an amazing, amazing painting. You'll say, how did this guy get forgotten? But then the longer you look at it, you kind of, and it's a thing, it's never here, but you just know. Mm -hmm. You say, oh yeah, it's, that's whatever. It doesn't have that thing. Right. It, it is partly intuition, right? Whether something really connects at an internal level or not. Yeah. And, and then there's also the case of things not getting as much exposure. There's the, uh, sometimes there's great artists and you just, they just didn't, they just didn't hit it. Hmm. And that was that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but that could be said for all fields, right? It's not just art. Yes. I mean, people yes. just get forgotten. Yeah. I mean, do you view your work in that historic sense where you want your work to be remembered much beyond you? I don't want myself. I don't want to be remembered. I, I have been thinking about death lately. My dad died uh, a year ago on the 12th of August, a year ago. Oh. So, yeah, so we're, we're the fifth. So I was thinking about him dying and it was a pretty... Um, unpretentious affair you know it was just simple uh the way we handled cremation and everything and i often have thought i wish i would just wash away in the ocean and disappear and nobody would know what happened to me and really nobody would care i just say, oh he's gone i don't know i don't know where he is you know i don't know if i'm dead or what i'm just gone uh and i think so i have no interest in myself being remembered but my work i always wanted to be a testament to this moment where somebody can look at it and it kind of lays out in its own way, humanity. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is what it is. I know that's a broad topic, but that's what I'm trying to talk about. So yes, I do I do see it as an, I don't know if I see it in the art world continuum, but I see it in the continuum of humanity that I hope people will look at it and say, okay, yeah, that that's the species. That's interesting. Some aspect of it interpreted by one person, but still. And this species. I just want to say I appreciate you coming on the conversation just like during the one year anniversary of your father. Oh, no. Yeah, that's no, okay. Yeah. Mm. Life goes on. Um, you were talking about the Sistine Chapel earlier and where just looking at it, you internally understand what it is about at a certain level. Mm -hmm. And you can see the craftsmanship in it because it's right there in terms of the sheer number of hours that have gone to making something like that. Do you think inherently if something is, I mean, you spend more time on something, it's automatically better? No, I don't think so. Uh, my, I'll just speak personally. The piece that I have that's 36 feet long, that's the biggest thing maybe I'll ever do. I'm not sure. Uh, and I think it's actually a fantastic piece. I think it's a very good piece of art. But I think it's very arguable as to whether it's my best piece. I don't think it is. Uh, so, uh, that's just one small example, but another example is that, um, sometimes people know how to, like, I think, I think about Hemingway sometimes, and I don't think I like his books very much. I like some parts of his books, mm -hmm. but I don't like his books. I don't like the characters in them, but I'll say this for him. If he existed today, he would be the best person ever at Twitter because he could say something in this much space that it would take me three sentences. He just knew how to say everything. Right. So there's something to that. You just know how to say it. It could. It doesn't have to be 
flowery. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to take a lot of time. It just has to have that thing. Yeah, I guess that's a, quite a different ability, right? Exactly pinpointing what will connect right. with people. Yeah. Another person that I like for that same reason, author-wise, and both of, it's funny, both of these guys, I hesitate to put them together. It just came to my mind this way because they have such bad reputations as being misogynistic or whatever. But I don't even, whatever. That's not the point of what I'm saying is another guy who does that is if you read Bukowski, he can say it in, he can sum up all of humanity in a paragraph. And when you read it, you know. And he's not a very deep author at times because he can take, uh, he takes the anti-hero method towards everything. Okay. So everybody that reads his book feels like, yeah, um, yeah screw everybody, you're right. Like it's a very easy way into to access the world. Uh, but he's another one that when he says something profound, which happens sometimes, you say, oh, he just said everything right there. That's the whole world. And that's why he's quoted so often. You know, you'll, you'll see his quotes and mm -hmm. say, oh, yeah, that's true. But there's some people could just say it. Do you wonder, like, when you, let's say, take so much inspiration from these prolific people from the past, you almost lose what you have to say within that because these people, whether painters, filmmakers, writers, they're all giants of their own field. No, because what I say um, is entirely from me. If I had to actually talk about who was the inspiration, mm -hmm. I couldn't name a person. What inspires me about people is their approach often more than anything they have to say or so I, I don't even think about an approach in terms of um, a technical thing, although that interests me. I think of approach of uh, um, I love to watch documentaries. I watch one in Hayao Miyazaki who does the Studio Ghibli things. I, and I just see how he's dealing with people. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm paying attention to. How he's talking about, oh, I don't even animate, but I'm, how he's talking about, oh no, this is how you cut like this. And how he's paying attention to what detail he's paying attention to. So then I can watch his work and think, this is how he thought about this piece. And that is what informs my work more than anything they ever thought about or ever did in terms of the content of their work. It doesn't right. interest me. Okay. I'm interested only in how they thought about it. So, and then in the end, I'm thinking about my own work. So I can't, how much can I even be informed by that? I ha I'm doing my own thinking. That's interesting. But I don't think... I think sometimes painters can say, oh, I love this painter and I learned this from this mm -hmm. painter and that I can't think of a single thing like that. I can name a hundred artists and tell you things I like about them, but in terms of the influence they're having on my work, I can think of nothing. Like I'm just doing this stuff. I don't know. It's all there. It comes in. They, it, they, for sure, the influence is there because it's all coming in. But when it's coming out, it's entirely just a thought process of unrelated to anything else. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say that's a sign of a very mature artist because especially when you're starting out in the art journey, you tend to replicate what your heroes works basically and you look at certain styles of work and you replicate it one-to-one. -one. But I guess it comes through experience where you know what parts to take in and what parts to not take in. Yeah, I think when I was young, I can remember that, you know, looking at artists and saying, I love that style. Mm -hmm. That's how I'm gonna draw, or that's how I'm gonna paint, and then doing that. But 
now that no longer exists. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the way Miyazaki was essentially conducting the orchestra of his studio to create these pieces because that's something I really admire about filmmakers essentially because they are not doing it themselves. They are bringing together a bunch of people to execute that vision. And I personally just feel that is probably the purest form of creation because it's not just your voice, but it's the ability to get people together to do it. I fully agree. Uh, a dream of mine is to make uh, movies mm, okay. with a group of people, a small group of people. I don't know if I'd even be able to handle live action because it takes so, so much, but, um, and really come up with something, but be kind of orchestrating it. But the beauty of that is, I think the best people who do that, directors, uh, animators, whoever, but the best directors who do that, what they're able to do is have the soul of the people working on it be in the work. Mm -hmm. Those, that soul is there. And that's what makes the work so great. If you're just forcing something to be your mind, sometimes it falls apart. Yeah, I guess that's when you hear of those dictator directors who just want exactly what they want and nothing else. Exactly what they want. Yeah, I think actually Kubrick was a bit that way, mm -hmm. maybe. Yeah, There are quite a few stories of I, him being that way, yeah. I, one of my favorite stories about him, this isn't, like uh, him about him being a dictator, but just a funny method it was um, when um, George C. Scott was doing uh, Dr. Strangelove, his character in that movie is so over the top. Like every time he's talking, he's like yelling at the screen. Mm -hmm. And like, there's a scene where he runs around the war room table and slips and falls down and stands back up and continues like speaking like full speed. And he act that was actually a mistake, like him falling down. He didn't mean okay. to, but it was just so perfect. But I read an interview with George C. Scott and he was so mad about that movie. He said, what they do is they do like 30 takes and he'd give like these nuanced, amazing performances. And then Kubrick would say, okay, now do one crazy. Just go, just go nuts. And they only use those takes in the movie. <laughs> so he got the performance he wanted, despite yeah, he knew how to get the performance he wanted. Right. Whether the actor involved was agreeing with that was performance it? or not. Right, exactly. Just on the uh, topic of like documenting and making films, do you record the process of yourself painting? No, I keep thinking about that. And I've tried, I have a thing right here, which holds a camera. Mm -hmm. I thought I'm going to do that. And I did it for five minutes. And I was so aware of the camera and that somebody, and then I said, I can't do this. Uh, I have, I'm done. I never even posted it. I just gave up. That was three or four years ago. Yeah. Do you think there's an aspect to that where you need to force yourself for it? I mean, to do that for a while till the point where you forget the camera exists. I considered that, but then I said, what's the point? Mm -hmm. Because I also don't even like to post process shots to my Instagram. Mm -hmm. I like to only show complete work. I like, there's something about that that I like. This is the finished work. So. Yeah. It's interesting yeah. you say that because when I scroll all the way to the back of your Instagram feed, it started off with a bunch of sketches, which were part of this larger piece, but yes. then it just got refined over time. Yes, that's how I started. Um, I thought, okay, let's show the process of making this. But when I was done, I realized that documenting that process was, a, was very difficult for me. It took something out of my soul. Like there was kind of, I said, I can't, I can't do that. Then that's when I had the idea, maybe the camera, but that didn't work either. Mm. That's interesting. Um, I, I just wanted to talk about like 
beginner artists for a moment when they look at sure. someone like you who has done such complex paintings and it's almost intimidating at first when you look at the sheer number of characters and environments there's like so much happening on the canvas how do they actually look at it and deconstruct the work to start understanding what went behind it in a technical level or a conceptual level i guess we could tackle both on a technical level i always tell people there's just practice mm-hmm. that's what i always tell beginner artists if they ask me a specific question i always answer okay this is a way to approach on a conceptual level i think that everybody even just even not even just beginner artists looks at it and they have to figure out a way to tackle it and i often give no advice as to how to do that people ask me what it's about and i just say i don't know i mean i have my own feeling it's a story i've repeated uh, 100 times but if you'll allow me i'll repeat it again here because it just had such a profound impact on my life I saw an interview with David Lynch. And this is another example of how just the process of thought, the thought process behind how he's doing this was that was the whole thing for me. He said that he was making the movie Eraserhead and um as he was making it he thought I should know what this is about, but I have no idea. I he said but I should know for myself what this is. and he said it wasn't until 10 years after the movie came out he's reading the bible and he said he came across a passage and he does not say what the passage is but he says that's it that's what erases that's what the movie's about and he said so the creator can know for themselves and then he says the second thing is because the woman was asking him a question what's your movie mahalan drive about he says the second thing is you can tell me you have no idea what it's about he said but after you go see the movie and you sit down for coffee with your friends and someone your friends as well that was about the, the whatever the, this and that you say no it was no no it was about this he said so you do know what it's about and the thing that you know is valid so that really shaped my whole approach to art just that simple statement one that he didn't know and it wasn't till later that he even found out and he may have never found out but you know when you're doing it there's something there but you can't explain it there's a reason you're making this and two that i took what he said another step also that if i tell you what it's about for me that takes something away from you because you have your own relationship to this thing and if i say no it's this then the things that you thought it was have to be cleaved and moved to the side in your own mind it takes a very strong person to then ignore what i just said and say no this is about this for me so i try to say nothing it's up to you what it's about and if i'm disrespecting everybody on earth and i'm an asshole so be it and if it's some beautiful thing which i didn't intend so be it whatever it is that's what it is i cannot remove what you know from you you know what it is and i know what it is that's an interesting analogy i guess the question that immediately pops up is which point of view is more valid is the observer's point of view more valid or the person who actually made it in reality once it's there we're both the observer mm-hmm. that's how i think intention and all these different things mean nothing once it's there you made something sometimes we make something and our intention is one thing and then when it's done we realize we failed mm-hmm. okay 
and there's something there. Whether we succeeded or failed, there's just something there. And now everybody's the observer. And that's one key to my artwork is I always view it as a critique on humanity. But I am a part of that. Too often artists make a critique of humanity, but the problem is they're critical because they're not putting themselves as a part of it. They're saying, look at what you've done. Mm -hmm. It's the Greta Thunberg thing. How dare <laughs> you? Well, you're wearing clothes too and using a phone. I know you're young. She can get away with it because she's young. But once she's 50 and she's ridden enough boats around the world, come on, we're all doing this thing. I know that better things can happen. I, and I commend her. It's not that I don't commend her, but there has to be some level of sympathy. When you say, how dare you? There has to be some level of sympathy because it's the species which we're a part of. And it's the same thing. I'm the viewer and you're the viewer. We look at it and we are both just there looking at it. That's it. Yeah, that's a great point. That's why I'm actually not a very big fan of these ultra nihilistic ways of looking at things where it's like humanity sucks or end people and that kind of thing. Because it's a constant evolution where it's like generations upon generations just evolving over time. So it's it's unfair yeah. to critique one sect in time in this moment. You know? No, I, I like I always say if humanity, people can point to anything that they want, but to me... One can even make the argument it started with language. But to me, the moment somebody planted a seed in the ground and said, I think a strawberry will grow. It was over. <laughs> this moment with everything and Wi-Fi and whatever's going on was inevitable from that moment. So anybody who says, oh, God, it's these big corporations. No, it just really isn't. Because agriculture allowed all this to happen. Yeah, so. this this reminds me of this interesting point that Joe Rogan brought up in one of his conversations where he was just talking about like cities just growing bigger and bigger. And, and it's an interesting point where he said like this is also natural because it comes from natural materials. It's just molded differently because cities aren't made out of some alien material. It's still part of what's available here. I, th I always think about this Louis C.K. joke about how he threw a candy wrapper on the ground. And somebody said, why are you littering? And he said, we, he was in New York City. He said, this is all litter. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I wanted to come back to the critic point that you had brought up earlier. Why do you think some people go into that line of work? I mean, it's easy uh, to critique, right? At the end of the day. I think, I'm not sure. I will say this about, G.H. Uh, Hardy says about criticism that it's work for a second rate mind. Uh, I quote that often as kind of to poke fun at things, but, and I think he may have a point, uh, and he was a mathematician. So his point was that this great creativity is the primary mm -hmm. and everything else is, is secondary. But, um, one I'll say about that before I continue, it's very easy for a mathematician to say that because oftentimes they're discovering true new ground they're true truly entering new territory and explaining it if they have like i said let they have that vocabulary they can explain it in a beautiful way i always think about firma's last theorem with firma's last theorem he wrote in a book i've thought of a one line way of proving this he wrote it in the margin of a book okay so if it was one line it must have been amazing because when they finally proved it, it was like 260 pages <laughs> <laughs> 
his mind was able to beautifully say this. So mathematicians are able to enter new ground and beautifully say things. There's true creativity there. But uh, maybe all uh, work other than that is some form of critique. I don't know. All other work is some reaction. I don't know. But leaving that aside and just talking about critique for a moment. True, to be a truly good critic, and I think to bring back Jerry Saltz, uh, I think he has an element to this, although I think he can be too flippant. It takes somebody with tremendous empathy because you have to love the work and the artist, even if it's bad work. Mm -hmm. You have to have true empathy for it and be able to say, oh, this is what it is. You have to have that empathy to even understand it. If it's bad work, what were they trying to do? If it's good work, how did they succeed? And then to be able to explain it in beautiful prose also requires that same empathy because you're trying to speak about something that came from another human being's heart. How does one do that? Uh, so critique is such a major part of the art world. We grow up and if you go to art school, they position critique as the highest level. Okay, you've made a piece, now we will critique. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's nonsensical. I, when people tell me, this is my opinion, it doesn't matter who it is, I throw it out. What difference does it make to me? So rarely does somebody say anything which holds any true water for what I was trying to do. Only, at, and maybe when you're a student artist, there is, maybe it has more value. And I'm not saying I've reached a level which is beyond critique. What I'm saying is somebody has to empathize so greatly with this thing that it's very difficult for somebody to walk in a room and say, oh yeah, this about it. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Or look on Instagram, yeah, this. This has no meaning. You're trying to tell me that my whole soul and the great effort, thought, love, care, humanity, existence that I put into this can be boiled down to you looked at an Instagram and made a comment and I'm not accepting your critique. It's true, I'm not accepting it. It means nothing. Your words, the words hold no weight because they are not describing what's happening. So it requires something very special. Uh, as, far, as far as movies, uh, I like uh, Roger Ebert as a critic. Sometimes I read his critiques and even if he hates a movie, most of the time I read those because his critiques are so funny. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's, I just read it for the entertainment of it. But sometimes he's able to tap in to the beauty of the creator and what the beauty of the piece is. And when you read it, He's actually able to expand on what you are seeing because he is so, there's so much love in what he's saying that you are able to love it the way he did. That is a good critic. Do you I, think, I don't know what, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just wondering, do you think to be a truly great critic, you need to be an equally proportionally good artist because you actually know what it means to go through the process of creating that? I don't think so. In fact, I'm not sure how many great artists have also been great critics, mm -hmm. because I think, again, it requires that level of empathy. And some artists are incredible. It might be incredibly insightful, so they can go right to the heart of a piece. That, and you say, oh, shit, this guy was right. So that is a good critique. But there's another element of it where somebody like, um, like a Picasso was known for being absurdly selfish and self-centered. So he might be intelligent enough to get right to the point of a piece and say, yeah, this. And you say, oh, shit, Jesus Christ, he knew. But at the same time, does he have the ability to love 
all the things and all the mistakes in it. That's an underrated part of critique, I think. And then to be able to talk about it, mm-hmm. then to be able to talk about it after that. So I am not sure if it takes being a good artist. Um, I think it's easier to respect somebody if they're good at what they do and they talk about what you do. Yeah, I'll say that. That's a good point. <laughs> because at least because, at certain yeah. level, you can appreciate the fact that they've gone through that. Yeah. And I think that's why sometimes we go to our heroes and just say, what do you think? Mm. What do you think about this? And then we value what they say because we think, shit, this guy did it. He's amazing. What does he think? That's why we do that. Well, I also think about basketball sometimes that there's a theory that sometimes the greatest players cannot coach at all because they cannot understand why you can't do it. Yeah. They say, well, all you have to do is do a hard dribble, right? Do a spin, do this, and then create space with this and then pass to the center. Like, why didn't you just do it? Well, I can't. <laughs> do that <laughs> that's why yeah that's true so, because i mean the average person may not be able to connect those patterns at all right exactly now i don't know if it translates to art but there may be an element of that to it i think it would i mean i personally think it would because at the end of the day it's just connecting different elements together whether it's in space right. with the basketball or with the canvas whatever it right be. so i wanted to talk about the symbology in your work you obviously have symbols from different elements and different times in history one could argue do you feel like you want to create your own fictional symbols at some point which become a part of your work ah uh, yeah that's something i think about often because there's some value in that mm-hmm. right because i'm even overtly saying in my work that there's value in these symbols somebody made this and it has meaning Uh, so I do think about that. I think the one symbol that I've contributed thus far, and it's a symbol that's already existed, but I've interpreted it. And perhaps many symbols are that, an interpretation of something that already exists, of love or whatever, uh, is my interpretation of Kalki, I think, is different than any interpretation that's existed before. And that's one symbol that I know I've seen other artists then interpret it that way after me. Mm-hmm. And so that's the first thing that I can say or that I'm aware of that I can say, okay, I've introduced something different to the conversation of symbols. But yes, I do have interest in that. I would like to do more of that. And that's the sculpture with the human figure with the dreadlocks. With the dreadlocks, yes. And he's in many of my different pieces. Yeah, as a young boy I have him and then in the series of course he's there, yeah. So And how- I actually have him No, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. I was saying I actually have him being of African descent, mm-hmm. which sometimes people get upset about. Yeah, but I, I don't care. I, that, that's what <laughs> I was about to come to. How did you arrive at that particular form? Like, why that? Well, I think there's some debate about this, but it's been generally accepted in my lifetime that the birth of the species was in Africa, and. although i know kalki will be born on the banks of the ganges and all these different ideas to me it would seem that the great he differs from the other avatars of vishnu in that he is here to end this age and return us repeat the cycle whereas the other ones were able, were progressing these the into the next age he is here to end this one and repeat the cycle mm-hmm. So it makes sense to me that he would come from the birthplace of the species. That was my logic behind that. Interesting. Do you yeah. do you um read about the historical relevance of these different mythologies like works 
I mean, of various authors and journalists who essentially link these mythical figures, so to speak, to real life characters or forgotten civilizations in the past? I have interest in that, but not incredible interest in that. To me, um, there's an element, this may sound absurd, but there's an element of even greater fiction to that mm -hmm. than the original story itself. Yeah. To me, the original story is true. Okay. Even if that truth isn't, it's true in the way a poem is true. We read a poem and we know that that is true. Santa Claus may not be real, as it says in the poem, but we know that what it says is true. Mm -hmm. And when I read the Mahabharata, that is true. There's truth in that, right? It, to connect it to some kind of reality somehow removes part of that truth. So I have less interest in it. I have an academic interest in it where I would read and say, oh, that's interesting. But then I just dismiss it. To me, whatever. Okay. Um, another thing I was reading through your Instagram, and I mean, a lot of my research for this conversation was through a lot of the posts that you had put up because you've written extensively about your work and stuff like that. And I came across an interesting line, which is simplicity can fool you with comfort. And that I thought was a pretty interesting line because it essentially goes against the postmodern philosophy of like less is more and just breaking everything down to its bare bones. Yeah. I think it go. Let's continue with the Mahabharata. Mm -hmm. That sums it up. These characters, every character, is in every situation, and every element of the story is unbelievably nuanced. There is no clear right, wrong. These are concepts which don't even exist in my mind. Like I, um, in Abrahamic religions, there's these, this strong concept of right or wrong. To me, in Hindu worldview, there is not the same uh, hard line stance on things. Uh, and when you look at your own life, my dad once told me, um, I was going through a very difficult time. And he told me, uh, I was having trouble. It doesn't matter. But he told me, don't try to understand anybody else or your relationship to them. He said, you cannot even understand your relationship to yourself. So what's the point? Mm -hmm. And what a eye-opening thing that was. It sounds like he's telling me to just forget about everything, but in truth, it's not saying that at all. Uh, the world is extremely complicated. And I think to expand on that point for a moment, I think sometimes about these Buddhist monks who spend a lifetime trying to achieve a state of oneness and then they get it, right? They get the state. Well, I'm clearly not doing that. So what's the point in speculating on who I am as a person? And you hear people do this all the time. I'm the kind of person who I like to, how do you even know that? The minute they start saying that, you know, something's going to come out, which isn't quite what it is. The world is so complicated. One cannot make anything simple. Sometimes simplicity is said in a statement. You say, oh, and you feel the truth of that. You know, oh yeah, okay, that's interesting. But that's almost like uh, the head of a pin, but there's so many pins. How can, this is not, there's, there's this universal, everything doesn't exist. It's that the world is nuanced. These are so many, I would say deep and complex thoughts. I mean, we've covered a pretty wide array of topics in this conversation. And I always, sometimes when I'm having these kind of conversations with artists who have already achieved a certain level of progress in their career or work 
I wonder about the student who's just starting out because for them just to make some money through their art would be the best thing in the world at that point in their life. How do they actually yes. approach something like this? That's, I view that for myself as a practical question. Mm -hmm. And the question is, how much are you willing to suffer? <laughs> now, some people are very fortunate. They maybe come from million dollar families and they can make work and they have friends they can sell it to. Maybe everybody's circumstance is different. Mm -hmm. But for the vast majority of artists, they're looking at the world thinking, nobody cares about this. How, there's such a ceiling in the art world too. You walk into a gallery, they don't want you to show them your work. It's so difficult. So you think, do I have to become established to sell in these galleries? But you only become established once I'm in a gallery. There's all these questions. And then there's just the popularity. Oh, my Instagram has 700 followers. How do I get to have? The question is simply how much are you willing to struggle? Because perseverance is everything. It's the only thing which is gonna get anybody anywhere. There's intelligence, there's all these different elements which one can talk about. But in the end, when you look at what got people successful, it was just the will and the desire. Mm -hmm. So I have been through every struggle somebody can possibly imagine. I don't think they're over. How could they be? I'm alive. Uh, and by every struggle, I don't mean I've been through wars and so on, but every internal thing, you, you see it in yourself. You have to get older and, and move beyond all these problems. And through that, you must continue to feel that your work has validity mm -hmm. and that you must continue to create. And you just keep making it about the work, not how do I sell the work, not, okay, what do I do with the work? Okay, I've made the work now. Continue to make work until eventually what you've done is undeniable. And you have to accept that maybe nobody will ever know you exist, but that the work was valid enough that you should have made it each day. And that's it. You have to either love the work and persevere through it or give up. There's no other thing. It's a harsh reality, right? I mean, it really comes down to that. Yes. Yes, I did not make money from my work for a decade. I made money at times, but not money where I say, oh, I, I can do whatever, buy a car. No, not that kind of money mm -hmm. for a decade. And I, it was almost through luck that I got to where I am now. And I think every artist might say, tell you the same thing. Oh, yeah, this happened. I met this guy forever ago, and then it just worked out. And whatever the situation is. It always feels like luck, but the reality was, it was the work. The work brings you the luck and the luck may never happen, but without the work, there is no luck. Yeah, without the work, there's not even a chance that the luck might exist. Not even a chance. Hmm, that's interesting. Well, I mean, we've been going for one and a half hours at this point, so I don't want to keep you for too long. <laughs> Um, Anything else that you have, I'm, I'm, I'm open. Yeah, I'm just going to leave you with one last question, which is how I like to end these conversations generally is over the next decade and a decade and a half, how do you see your work progressing or do you never even think that far ahead? I don't 
think that far ahead. Sometimes I have markers, but I don't know how I'll get there. I know that I'll quit before I'm dead. Mm -hmm. At some point I will stop making work. Um, because I'm not sure if I'm a person that's compelled to do it. I do it because I love it, mm -hmm. but I actually love other parts of my life more. I love my family more. I love spending time with my wife more. I love my kids more than my, than, excuse me, than my work. So I know at some point I will stop success or not. I'll say, okay, I've had enough of this. Mm -hmm. And I, but I don't have a time in mind. And I also know that I will, um, I also know that I will try to make work different from the work I'm making now, which is what I mentioned before. Those two things I know. Nice. Wow. So I think this is a good way to circle back to where we began. And this was a really fun conversation, Kalyan. I really enjoyed it. Um, these conversations are always very different. Mm -hmm. If you would allow me, I actually think that your interviewing ability is among the best I have ever uh, seen. Oh, wow. And I've been interviewed by some very interesting people, but yours is because uh, you can listen. I don't know. You're just a, it was first rate. So I, I really appreciate it. It's a testament to you. I had this whole conversation with you and I know so little about you, but just from the way you handled this, I know there's got to be a lot going on there. So well, that really I really mean, appreciate it. That really means a lot. Thank you. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Awesome. Um, I hope we can just continue staying in touch. I really admire your work and I hope to see it evolve to whatever it goes next. Thank you. Uh, yeah, let's stay in touch. Awesome. Bye-bye. Cool. Take care.